0: You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled, How to Teach OSINT. The talk features Eric Toller, Bellingcat's director of research and training, who dropped by our server to share his insights on how to teach digital open source investigative methods. Eric's talk included tips on how to structure classroom lessons and activities. The stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on the Bellingcat Discord server on May 11th, 2023. Today, we are joined by Eric Toller, who's the Director of Research and Training at Bellingcat, Eric's been a member of Bellingcat since the very beginning. In fact, I think he was the first person that Elliot hired after Bellingcat was founded. That's correct, right? I think so. Yeah.
1: yeah, in 2015. 2015,
0: so he's been here since day one. Eric's work spans over a broad range of topics, though recently you've probably heard of him through his research on the Discord intelligence leaks. Eric is here to talk today to us about building a curriculum. To teach open source research methods and how to deliver these materials in a classroom in an effective and engaging way. Eric, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Sure, thank you for having me on. I think this is the first stage talk I've done, or have I done one before? Can't I think you've done one before. Uh, I don't okay, know. You okay. come to a lot of them, so I see. I'm used to. Seeing yeah, I come to name. them. Yeah, it's kind of hard. They run together. Yeah. Um, okay. So I was gonna, I'm gonna talk to you guys for a while about. Um, so Jean-Carl asked what I wanted to talk about, and I've been talking about these leaks um, just nonstop, these Pentagon leaks nonstop, and I, don't, I want to talk about something else, uh, because I'm tired of sick, tired of talking about the Pentagon leaks and Jack the Cher and all that stuff. Um, and I also don't want to talk about all the nasty, um, the white supremacist guy who did the shooting in Dallas, so I want to talk about something that's more fun, um, and a little bit less violent, which is about teaching OSINT, about kind of pedagogy and, and how to teach and all this stuff, because... My title is Director of Research and Training. So this is half my half my job, though often it's more like 75% of my job um, with with how things actually work with the workload. Around basically teaching other people about how to how to do OSINT, how, to, how to do digital investigations, how to do verification, and how to do all the other stuff that we do. Um, again, volume fine, I don't need to move into my mic, mic placement. No, yet. you're good, Eric. You're good. Okay, okay, wonderful. Okay. Sorry, but it's very paranoid because but it's it's like two feet away from my my mouth here. Um, uh, so OSTM is kind of a very particular thing to teach because it most people who who do it are self-taught. So Giancarlo, you're, you're probably, I'm sorry, this is a stage talk. I'm going to involve you though. Are, are you basically self-taught too? Uh,
0: yeah, I was just copying what you guys were doing.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And the majority of people who work for us and who, who do this work just teach themselves how to do it uh it's not like you you know it's not like learning a language or learning a programming language right like you know when you learn python right there's all these different like resources maybe you go to university and do it maybe you do like an online course maybe you watch those youtube videos there's a million different ways to learn things like python or or an actual language like if you want to learn spanish or, or french or whatever um and with OSINT, i mean there are some structured ways to learn OSINT, but the majority of people who actually do it teach themselves how to do it kind of by just doing it right And figuring out as you go along Um, and a big there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that it's such a new field, and another one is because things change really, really quick. Because I mean, like, can you develop like a curriculum on like how to do you know, for example, like the courses we taught four or five years ago and our training courses, the content is like almost totally different than what we have now. I mean, some stuff carries over, but like you know, stuff around working with like Facebook is like we barely even teach how to work with Facebook anymore because it's useless because you can't really do OSINT Like formalize OSINT research on Facebook anymore because they've killed all the different methods. It's it changes very very quickly. Um, so you know it's it's very particularly challenging field on how to teach it. Um, but there are some ways. So I'm just going to run through some of the ways that people do teach themselves or are are all are taught how to do um, OSINT. So uh, the most common way is I said they just figure it out, right? So most people kind of figure a particular topic that they're interested in. So right now, you know things. The most popular field of doing OSINT is the the war in Ukraine. Um, before then, everyone was working on Syria. So, for example, Elliot, our, our founder, he learned and taught himself how to do this with the Libyan civil war and the Syrian civil war, right? So, there's a whole generation of people who do OSINT because they kind of came up on the Syrian civil war, right? Um, and now there's a whole generation coming up on the war in Ukraine, which has been, of course, going on since 2014, but you know, went into full swing and full invasion um, um, uh, last year, last February um and so that's one way um and but a lot of people do it other ways so some people get into flight tracking some people get into naval tracking some people get into just digging digging into you know digital footprints you know those weird guys like on 4chan on kiwi farms and so on who like you know do doxing and stalking people that's that's Ocent, right i mean it's you know if it goes way back if if anyone remembers who was on something awful back in the day like with held up is they, i don't know if anyone remembers that way back in the day but that was kind of you know that was OSENT, right it was just digging the people's footprints and Doxing them and embarrassing them and stuff, right? You know, so, that, you know, it's not maybe the most um, hygienic form of OSINT or ethical, but, but it's it still is, right? It's basically the same techniques we do when we do our work. Uh, so, people figure out by diving into a particular topic, and then you kind of branch off from there. Um, I'm thinking about our colleague um, Carlos, who taught himself um, OSINT by working with photos from the Europol Identify an Object campaign, right? And ge- doing these like extreme geolocation efforts. And from there, he then branched out and learned how to do other forms of OSINT from there. So he kind of got his foothold by doing what he really specialized in because he's an engineer by trade. So he kind of took this very technical, analytical approach to doing um, geolocation. And then from there, he learned about all the other aspects from there. Another way of people learning is by um, online guides that are out there. So we obviously at Cat, we publish a lot of these free online guides for people to read um it has you know walkthroughs and stuff and, and the way that you structure these things is also kind of its own its own challenge because you can do a guide or a case study or walkthrough but i've written a lot of these that are um like i remember I, once i published one on a facial recognition platform in russia and within two weeks the entire article was completely obsolete because the site was taken down and changed so they're sometimes when you write these guides they're super useful at the time but they have an expiration date they, they go they go stale pretty quickly you know, like like a banana that you buy, like you buy a bunch of bananas in a week. They're you know they're all brown and nasty. So that's kind of how it is for writing these guides. Sometimes they have some perseverance and they kind of you know, they 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 preserve for a while, but sometimes they go out of date pretty quickly. So that's a very imperfect way of teaching OSINT is these kind of online walkthroughs and case studies. Um, another way are videos. Like there's a lot of YouTube videos out there of teaching OSINT, but again, exact same as I said before. These these go stale pretty quickly because they're kind of just a video form of an online guide and, you know, teaching you how to use a certain platform or technique is is great at, you know, at the time. But if you look at a 2019 video of someone walking through OSENT on YouTube, the video is probably obsolete by now. Like there may be some techniques you can get through. So like some shit location techniques and stuff are kind of timeless and you don't really need to update those over time. But a lot of particular resources are probably gone and um, or, or changed dramatically and you need to have refreshers on them. Maybe one of the, the best ways to really learn OSINT is through some kind of um, community, right? So this is like, for example, there's a there's a Discord called Bellingcat. There's a Bellingcat Discord out there that you guys may be familiar with that's good for this. There's the Project Owl Discord. Um, Twitter is just kind of like the OSINT central, though that may change in the next year or two. But as of right now, you know, Discord is, or sorry, Twitter's the biggest one. And the, you know, there's some places on Reddit, though the Reddit places are just a cesspool of people just trying to stalk their ex-girlfriends mostly. Um, but um, Discord and Reddit are the places to go to where you, know, you learn stuff and stuff is continually updated, but this requires a huge investment of time and energy, right, you can't, you know, monitoring and keeping and being active in these communities is something you can do, and that's a good way to stay, you know, really, really on top of stuff, but it requires a whole bunch of time, um, a whole bunch of time to really dig into this and, and, and keep updated on this. So it's, you know, it's a big investment of time, but it, but it works. Um, another thing people do is just recreating other people's work. So this is a thing that also requires a lot of time and energy, but it's also very useful. Um, so this is like, this is kind of the way I learned how to do this in the first place. So I looked at other people doing this kind of OSINT work, and then I guess kind of like recreated their investigative processes. So I just say like, okay, this is their, where their starting point was, with so this, you start with a phone number or a name or an address or whatever, and their endpoint was finding an old Reddit profile or or whatever it is, right? And this is one of the best ways to learn how to do this work is just by looking at other people's um published work and kind of recreate their process and try to recreate their their steps and then you kind of learn by going through the investigative process and kind of seeing how the sausage is made um and then the two other versions i have of kind of how people learn osent is by formal courses so the two versions of this are people who offer kind of osent focused courses so bellingcat we offer these this is the thing i organize and we run you know we Train you know a thousand or so people a year on how to do this stuff. Um, Sans S A N S they do and I think OSINT five nine seven I think is their course number for that something like that. It, it costs an ungodly amount of money, but I, I've heard it's good. But it costs like five thousand dollars I think it's it's insanely expensive. Um, ours is ours is not cheap also. It's a if you want a sixteen hour course from us it's a thousand bucks or a thousand euros um, before before you before you pay tax. Um, but you know, that's, it's, it's, a bit, it's relatively, it's, it's expensive. There's some sticker shock, but it's, it's compared to the alternatives of other kind of private vendors who sell OSINT training we're actually insanely affordable compared to a lot of, we, we try to keep it affordable within the, you know, within, within the genre, I guess you could say. And so our courses, which I'm going to be talking more about in a bit are structured, um, to kind of, to take in beginners and intermediates. We don't really, we have some advanced courses out there, but we definitely like kind of tailor our courses to more beginner and intermediate levels. I'll talk more about those in a bit, and kind of how our philosophies of constructing these courses in a bit. And lastly, there are some university courses for this too. There aren't a whole lot of them, but there are some. Um, so, Jean-Carl, weigh in if you can think of some off the top of your head, because you're actually going to be teaching one next semester, right? Um, so, I'll have you talk about this in a sec too. Um, it'll be, it'll, this is a um, a bilateral, I think. Um, stage talk, maybe by the end of it. But uh, I, I taught one. I guess I'm just finishing up a course. I taught. I'm teaching at Tulane University in New Orleans. I'm just finishing this right now. I'll talk about that in a bit too. UC Berkeley, um they have their human rights um um the, uh, their their lab there, which is great. Um uh, UC Santa Cruz has a lab. Um UCLA, I think, their law school has one. Um the University of Albany is opening up a new OCENT lab. Um our colleague Nathan Payton, he teaches an OSENT course at Georgetown. Um I think um Olga, who who's at Facebook, I think she teaches a class with Facebook too. Um um, let me think, Haley Willis at the New York Times Visual Investigation Team, she teaches an OSINT course at NYU, I'm pretty sure. NYU or Columbia? I'm pretty sure it's NYU, not Columbia. I think that Columbia, their Pulitzer Center, um, um, their journalism school, I'm pretty sure they teach an OSINT course as well, too. So there are some, and there, I'm sure there are others I'm, I'm forgetting about, but there are OSINT courses out there within university structures, but they're on the coast, basically, right? So basically New York, D.C., and California, basically the only places off the top of my head that that teach these, but it, but there are probably more. Uh, and, and the one I do in two language, I guess is coastal, southern coastal. Um, I know, Giancarlo, do you want to talk about your course that you're, again, just to make this a bilateral talk? Is that sure. the course that you're preparing or anything about any big plans that you have coming up? Because it yeah. became, became public yesterday, right?
0: Uh, I think so. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to your stage talk, <laughs> Eric. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No problem. Yeah. Thank you. I, uh, yeah. So I am. Um, I'm going to be joining the um, Netherlands Institute for Human Rights at uh, Utrecht University here in the Netherlands, and uh, they are setting up a open-source investigation lab um, along the same vein as the Human Rights Center at Berkeley. And so um, they uh, reached out to us uh, a couple months ago, um, us, Bellingcat. Uh, we helped them out a little bit with... Uh, um, sort of coming up with the curricu- the curriculum and, and and you know sort of sending them articles and sort of new research that they could include in their course. And then uh throughout the course of that, you know, we got to talk in. I was finishing my PhD and then they said, uh, yeah, do you want to come and, and work here for a bit? So I'll be I'll be joining them part-time. Uh but starting in June I'll be I'll be with them. And again, the the point of that is going to be to help them set up uh this new program that is essentially this sort of thing uh open source research for human rights investigations
1: yeah yeah thank you for that and this is something that is popping up more in europe and the us and and all over with kind of this us or this osent everyone wants a you know a piece of the pie i guess of the of the osent world um so there's a lot of interesting stuff coming up and i'll talk about my two-lane course um uh actually i'll just talk about it now so um I'm finishing up a uh, 16-week course um, at Tulane University, which, again, is a big private university in New Orleans, if you don't know it. Uh, they had a really good football. They had a really good season football this year, if you, if you follow college football. I think they were, like, I don't know, like 12-1 and or something like that. I don't, I don't remember. Um, maybe they're undefeated. I honestly don't know. Anyways. Um, this is a 16 week course I developed and it was a kind of a, a MOOC style course. And like, in the sense that we only had like four like zoom meetings, like it, I think it was like 12, like three hours of pop, so there were like 12 hours total of actually meeting, but the mo- majority of it was kind of like a MOOC, right? A MOOC is like to where you kind of create all the, it's like a self-guided course, right? Like I give the readings, like there's assignments and there's like discussions and all that is all kind of prepackaged into like an online portal. So I built that. It took me uh, a couple months, two, three months to build the, um, to build the the course, and then the, we I had a, about a dozen or so students who took it. Who uh, hopefully I don't. Know, hopefully they liked it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll find out my course evaluations. Uh, and it was over kind of the big topics, right? So I did a course on security, right? A core uh, a, a module on ethics, a module on geolocation, a module on uh, major platforms, and one on satellite track. You know, satellite maps, right? So like kind of the the big things were kind of covered like on a, on a week um, week and a half basis each and it, it was interesting I mean setting it up it was I mean this wasn't too terribly different than our other courses we do because our other courses are are guided like they're like live we don't do like um, you know MOOC style courses been like that like they're all live guided courses uh, but it was interesting that to do these um, um, kind of adapt some of these materials and kind of have like guided examples and readings and kind of a mix of like academic y stuff because there is a lot of kind of academic y writing on OSINT, including Giancarlo, has written a couple of articles. Um, um, I think you've gotten published in journals and also just kind of like popular stuff. I mean, just like an article from the New York Times, right? Or like an Ashley Feinberg article where she, like, you know, found Donald Trump Jr.'s like secret forums, Storm accounts, and things like that, right? They're all very useful. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting setting, up, setting this up in kind of an academic environment, but I, it wasn't quite like a traditional course in the sense like I wasn't like, you know, meeting every day with students or meeting like once a week with students and giving a lecture. It was kind of a very self-guided course. Kind of a, kind of a mix of um, kind of our online webinar courses and um, more self-guided stuff. Anyway, so teaching. So if we're, the way we set up our courses, we have two, at Bell and cat we have two different kinds of um, Well, I guess we have three different kinds of teaching. We have the guides and case studies and stuff we put on our site that are free to use. You know, everyone can access them. We have some videos. We have some published stuff. We have all the free stuff that's out there. But as I said, this stuff is great, but it goes out of date. It it, it expires kind of quickly just because stuff changes so quickly. We also have webinars we run. So these are, we started doing these in the pandemic. To, we do Zoom webinars where we have about 20 several people in a, in a class and we kind of walk through in, in four hour chunks, between four, eight hour, 12 hour, 16 hour workshops at four hours at a time. Um, kind of like very broadly about how to do different kinds of work. So sometimes we do like a verification focused workshops. So this is like an eight hour workshop over two days. It's just over geolocation, verification, satellite maps, that sort of stuff. Um, or anyone that's entirely focused on researching people and like social media footprints and stuff like that. Um, we also have some specialized courses. So Giancarlo um, occasionally does a, um, a four hour course just on flight tracking. And I think a little bit of naval tracking, but I think it's mostly flight tracking. And just like, just really getting to the weeds about this stuff. And I do a specialized course on, um, I've done this six or seven, maybe eight times. I don't even know how many times I've done it by now um on investigating on the russian language internet the runet so like even if you don't well hopefully you speak at least read a little bit of russian for this but like how do you navigate the russian language internet what are some obstacles do it um but most of our courses are very general and kind of built for kind of a beginning beginner intermediate audience so um our our audience for these are usually the majority of our participants are either journalists or corporate work and corporations so these are people who are in like cybersecurity officers who do corporate security, risk or threat analysis, things like that. So people in big corporations who do, you know, maybe like traveler safety, or maybe they do risk analysis, or maybe they do cybersecurity, things, that kind of thing. Of course, journalists, which you kind of go, you'd expect that to be. Um, we also get a lot of human rights investigators, human rights researchers, we get a lot of students, which is cool. Um, and just general enthusiasts, we get like a lot of like retirees who are kind of interested in this stuff, we just want to learn about it. So we have a pretty huge range of skill levels. Like, you know, if you are like a cybersecurity professional and you come into the workshop, you have like a very, you know, elevated sense of internet literacy already, right? Versus if you're a retiree, um, you, you may not be quite um, so up to date on, you know, like, for example, if I say something is indexed on Google, maybe only two thirds or maybe even half of participants will know what that means if something's been indexed by Google. Um, or if I say that something is, um, you know, run a reverse image search on this, you know, maybe only 60 or 75% of the participants will know right away what that means. So we have to come at, it's a real challenge of developing these courses to where we can, um, help, you know, whenever you develop these courses and you work, you're, t- you're often teaching to that 25% rather than to the 75%, which is often a challenge that you want to make sure you don't have people who, who straggle behind when you, when you do this stuff. But you also don't want the people who are in the top 25% to get bored. So it's 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 a struggle to when you organize this material to where you have you're you're playing for those two extremes, right? The people who are pretty good already and who want to like just top up their skills, and the people who don't know what index Google pages. Right? It's kind of you're working those two extremes. So at least my philosophy with this is I kind of do a lot of tiered examples and case studies. So by tiered I mean Um, I say, okay, so let's do, uh, let's all do a search together. So there's a lot of exercises involved in this stuff when we do these, um, both in-person and webinar workshops. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention, the third thing is we do in-person workshops too. So after we did this pre-pandemic and now we're starting them up again, we do um, in-person workshops that can go as long as 40 hours over an entire week. So like nine to five for for Monday through Friday, like a full week. We did this in Amsterdam um, a month or two ago. And we're going to be doing one in Prague coming up. And I'm going to be doing one in New York. And we're going to be doing one in London as well, too, this year. Anyway, so uh, we, do kind of, we do a lot of our work based on exercises and kind of case studies that are kind of with tiered kind of goals. So, for example, let's say I want everyone to do um, a structured search of, like, looking for maybe, like, sensitive documents, right? So we're teaching, let's say, operators. So, like, a site operator or a file type operator or, like, an in title operator, right? So just kind of the very fundamental parts of, like, a search a search um, operator. So one person a participant, one participant may be completely new to this, who never who has no idea that you could do file you could do operators on Google at all. So an operator is like site colon bellingcat.com. It's like give me all results that are on belling Some people may have no idea what that was in the first place. So we'll give kind of when we do exercises, we'll kind of tier it to where like the easiest example, like the, for the most successful uh, most accessible version is you know, find all mentions of, you know, blank on the New York Times site, right? So like, can you find all mentions um, of, I don't know, of of of, um, of Russia um, on this, on New York Times, right? Which will give you hundreds of thousands of examples, right? But the idea is they get that across. Maybe they wanna find a particular page, like you can do this and then can you do this? Plus um, on your own company's website, right? So can you search on your own company's website for this? Right, so I think it's very simple. But then I'll kind of, you can elevate it to where it's like, okay, do this. But also for the ones who are a bit more advanced, can you also maybe find some, do you have like a hidden file, like unsecured file directory on your file site, on your on your company site? Or maybe you can find, um, if we're like searching for the New York Times, you can add like a time limit operator to this, right? Or maybe you can have them play around with the URL structure to where it's like, okay, you analyze the URL structure and you add some wild cards into the site search to play around with like the date and topic and things like that. So this is a big thing that I, I think about when I kind of structure these examples and case studies and exercises is how to make it accessible for the person who doesn't know what a Google index is or doesn't know the site operator is and the person who's looking to, you know, again, the, the top 25% and the bottom 25%. So we try to make sure as many examples as we have in our, um, in our exercises to where it's kind of, it, it goes both ways, right? We, have, we kind of have stretch goals, right? You do this basic thing and then do this and then do this and try to find a little Easter egg. Because sometimes we like to have, I like to do examples where there's little Easter eggs and someone may notice something that's kind of, you know, that maybe is and it's spelled out in the instructions and feel like, oh, you know, I, I noticed that blank, 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 right? So, you know, that's not the easiest thing to explain when well, I'm just like looking at a camera and like waving around my hands and <laughs> you're just listening. Uh, but hopefully that, that kind of makes sense. And, and a big challenge of doing these workshops is kind of, if you think about like the alternatives or competition is lots and lots of free material. So there's tons of free material out there. Again, some of it is dated, of course, but a lot of free material is out there to learn OSINT. Lots of videos, lots of guides, including on our own site. So like why would someone pay to come to our workshop? You know, pay, you know, $1,000 to come to our workshop for a week. And both, you know, to spend half their week with us, but also to, you know, have them more more often have their employer uh, spend a bunch of money. So kind of what we kind of our philosophy behind this is that it's kind of an organized package right to where we kind of like say like if you you know uh, Because again the majority of participants we have their companies send them to us or they have their companies pay for this So this is kind of like a package of like okay You want to be you don't know anything about this or you're a beginner and we'll get you up to like a certain Intermediate level of kind of introducing the wide world of OSINT to you so you can learn how to do basic to intermediate map mapping satellite Flight tracking verification all that you won't be an ultra expert in any of these things unless you kind of go on your own, but we can like get you started and give you a foothold let you know where to go from now. So kind of like it's kind of like it's kind of an all in one package is kind of one the way we think about it. We also have to do the again those guided exercises we build these exercises that are kind of tiered based on difficulty level to where if you are a complete newbie to this. Or kind of someone who's a little bit more experienced we try to make sure you there's something for you and you'll you'll get something out of it either way. And the big thing, the big thing I really, really try to focus on, that is um, that is kind of independent and kind of time, you know, um, expiration proof, is I really, really talk a lot about um, meta processes and how to like really how to think about things from like a bigger perspective. So, um, if you are uh, doing a approaching a research topic, it's not just like I use tool X and then cite Y and then do plug into script Z. It's more about how to approach this from a big like a more meta um, kind of 30,000 foot perspective, like how you organize your data, how you think about how you approach a research question like Okay, I need to approach this by thinking about um, how data is structured and like how I can think about ways to approach the topic and how to like really attack this from a, you know, a data, you know, a data heavy perspective so. you know for example like what are things you look out for like you know look look you know look keep an eye out for phone numbers and you know things like that but also kind of a very general view on how data is structured online and kind of what how open source is done so for example if you're investigating a person the things that you're trying to work on aren't you know I, we could talk forever about specific sites and tools that let you you know, look up phone numbers and all that stuff, which is great and we do talk about that to a degree. But I understand also, I may teach this to you within six months, the site will go down and then, you know, you paid all this money for this this, and then your site doesn't work anymore, so it's useless. But I'd like to focus a bit more on, okay, these are like kind of a, from a very big perspective around these are the ways that information is revealed online, right? So what people do is they reuse their credentials, right? They use their, reuse their phone numbers and their passwords and their usernames and so on. And this is something that's going to persist beyond a single tool or site that goes down, right? The way you think about approaching a problem of like what information you exploit in order to research a person or an an organization and how you pivot from one data point to the other, to the other, to the other. So the way I think about this is, okay, so if you are, the way that you um, research a person or group is by pivoting between data points, right? You start with a Start with a name, then you find a, you know, a company listing, then you find a phone number, then you find an email, then you find a LinkedIn, then you sign a Facebook, right? Blah, 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 blah. And the trajectory points from one data point to the other will constantly be changing, right? There may be a tool or site out there that lets you pivot from phone number to Facebook account, right? It used to be on Facebook, you can just type in someone's phone number on Messenger and their account would pop up instantly, like no problem at all. But Facebook took that down. So that kind of that bridge between these two data points disappeared. So it, this, is, this is a thing that I've tried to, I really harp on in our trainings, is trying to think about largely about how data is structured, how to look for data, how to exploit it, how to connect it, even when these bridges are built up and go down between these data points, and how to find what those bridges are between them. So again, this is kind of like a future-proof, kind of resilience, I guess you could say, of kind of a mindset of how you approach investigative work um, that will kind of outlive any one tool or, or process. Hopefully that, hopefully that makes sense of how I'm explaining it. But I try to, again, when I do the trainings and examples and all that stuff, I really think about how to make it to where it will, you know, we'll show you some tools and sites and all that stuff. But make sure you're getting something out of the training that will outlive um, if all the sites I talk about go down tomorrow from you know, after a DMCA request or whatever. Um, yeah, so a bit more kind of broadly about our research, um, our, our training, just so if you know, more logistical stuff if you're interested. Um, we do both private and public workshops at Bellingham. So our public workshops are ones to where we just post, like, we're holding a workshop on these days, apply here to get in. And it's basically first come, first serve. So if we you know we come in and we take about 20, 25 people in, and it's basically, if you apply first, you get in. That's basically, we don't really give preferential treatment to anyone. Um, we don't let, we do keep people out. Um, no police are allowed. Um, government workers are case by case. We usually say no to people who are in government, but sometimes if it's something totally benign, um we're, well it's fine right so like you know for example someone who works in like immigration will be told no someone who works on like i don't know like the library of congress right or like an archival work yeah sure that's fine you you can come into the workshop so it's kind of a case by case thing it usually we we say it's usually the first answer is no convince us um but yeah um no military um no security services no police you know we keep keep those people out um but everyone else is basically first come first serve with the private with the public workshops Um, We also do private workshops that are for specific organizations. So, for groups, for media companies, and for nonprofits, we price them the exact same as the public workshops. So it's like you get a you. It's basically like the public workshop, except like they get to pick the stuff that's you know what stuff we teach, the length, the time, all that stuff, right? It's just like a bespoke public workshop basically for what organization. And if you are a nonprofit or media company, we just we charge you the exact same as we do everybody else, as we charge the public. If you're a corporation. Uh, we charge 50 percent higher so the standard rate is um i think like 250 euros per four hours per person and so we bump that up 50 percent um um for if you're a if you're you know like a, a bank or a or a you know a tech company or something you know if you're a, a for-profit and we we get a bit of mix about 50 50 between those when we do these workshops we also do um we also do some free workshops so sometimes we um, we do workshops that are free we don't charge at all for some nonprofits and human rights groups and journalistic groups, um, who we think especially need it. So sometimes we do these, like we've done these a lot, a lot, a lot of Russian or not, not Russian lately it used to be Russian, but lately for obvious reasons, we don't do stuff with a lot of Russian groups because everyone is dispersed all over a lot of Ukrainian, um, groups we've done this for free. So like Ukrainian human rights groups and journalistic places, we've just done free, just, you know, free webinars just for free, not charging there or anything. Um, and we have um, done it for a few other places too. I think we did one for a, um, was it a, a place in Cyprus? Was that, Giancarlo, do you remember this? Was it a place in Cyprus we did that free workshop for? In Cyprus? Cypro- uh yeah.
0: I think they asked us for it, but I don't remember. I I never went.
1: I think we ended up doing, I can't we I think I, we, did a, we did a webinar for them. I didn't actually go to Cyprus. Oh, yes, I, think. Yes. I think it was At just a webinar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it was like this new this new um, independent newsroom in Cyprus that was starting out. We did it for free, you know. So we do these occasional uh, workshops for free. And it, oh, we did the one for um, – what's the Palestinian group we did the free workshop for? Um, I can't remember the name. But, I'm yeah, bad with names. We, we do these <laughs> – We do them up, yeah, I'm bad so with names often too. that we'd remember, we forget the names. Yeah, them. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so the point is sometimes places who can't afford um, – can't budget for it we do them for free once in a while um, but this just depends on the interests of the trainers because again this is the trainers time they're spending this and we're not getting paid for it um, and just make sure they have enough time for it and they're, they're interested in it but we do them occasionally um, we also do some country specific training work so we used to do so um, we used to get funding from NED um, this is what everyone calls the CIA because we got funding from NED once upon a time we don't get it anymore it was like we stopped a year or two but this trade, but this funding we got for them was for running workshops in, Rus- in Russian in the former Soviet um, countries. So we would run, I, I, I ran a bunch of these. These were in Tbilisi, Yerevan, Bishkek, and Almaty. So in Ka- Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Armenian, Georgia. We ran Russian language workshops for Russian-speaking journalists. So these were Russian, Ukrainian, Georgian, Armenian, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, Tajik, Uzbek, just basically from the whole former Soviet Union. Um, and we would the what the grant did is it it um, let us host these workshops and like we'd go to like a hotel or a newsroom or something in Tbilisi or I think we did we did some in Kiev I I did one in uh, Kiev State or Kiev Mohyla University for example, and it would help um, you know just pay for the um, participants to come in and do a workshop so it, you know this like you know that's 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 a that's the extent of our nefarious NED funding is that we just gave the, it was the exact same workshop we gave to everybody else except it was in Russian. So it was me, uh, my colleague Nareen, and my colleague Eganish, we did these in Russian. I haven't spoken. I used to do these in Russian, but I have not. I don't speak Russian much anymore because I don't have a chance. But I used to do these workshops in Russian, but my, my Russian would be way too rusty to do nowadays. Um, if, I, if I was thrown into one of these right now, I, I'd struggle a little bit. But I used to do, do them. Uh, but we, we ended that uh, a year or two ago just because we kind of... Um, I know it, with, with COVID, um, it, it, with the pandemic, it became difficult. And also with us being an undesirable organization, it wasn't worth it just because it would be, um, dangerous for the Russian participants because, you know, if associated with us, it could be a, it, they could go to jail by taking one of our, one of our courses because we're an undesirable organization in Russia. So we ended up for a handful of reasons, uh, but that was one of the reasons it's just, uh, it just wasn't, you know, it was a, it was a good grant. and It went really well, but it just wasn't worth doing anymore. Um, and we also did a work we did with OSF, right? So open societies. Big, big, bad Soros gave us, I um, had to do some workshops in Spanish and some Latin American countries. These are in Colombia. Um, did you do Was it Costa Rica, Panama? Where are they?
0: Oh, yeah, everywhere. Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia, Argentina. I went to Ecuador once. Yeah, actually, I was hired with that grant from Open Society yeah, Foundation. Yeah, yeah. So we got the money specifically yeah, yeah. to hire somebody who spoke Spanish to give trainings mm-hmm. in uh, Spanish in Latin America. So that's why I got hired, because yeah. we got that fund.
1: Yeah, yeah. So with these grants, let us do these trainings, again, for free. Obviously, no one's paying for these, except you know, that's why we got a grant for them um, um, for participants. So again, it's the exact same content that we do for everyone else. It's just for free and in, in, in the country, in the regional language. Um, they cut us. I think we had that grant for two or three years, and they cut us off. I think they said that we were we were doing too well, and we we were getting too much money elsewhere, and so they didn't think they needed their money anymore. So. And we're restarting, a, we got another project uh, with another grant where we're doing, uh, we got a new grant recently, and we're doing some more training in Africa, Latin with a, the Montpellier project, I think is what they're called, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're doing some in, I think, Central Asia. We've done one in Kyrgyzstan already. We've done, we're doing some in Africa. Um, Yuri, I think, is going to, like, Nigeria soon for a workshop. Um, and also in Latin America, like Colombia, probably, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, I think is where we're going to go most likely we're restarting a little bit of this and this is focusing mostly for universities so we're doing these um, mostly in universities and i think some maybe some newsrooms but mostly focusing on doing these trainings in like journalism schools and things like that in universities and um, kind of the global south is the idea um yeah so this is um that's 35 about half an hour 35 minutes yeah so i'll, I'll leave the q a but um hopefully i okay. covered everything in my notes i hope that was interesting you guys
0: no that was great thank you so much eric and we do have a bunch of questions from um, uh, people in the chat here. So thank you for asking them. Sure. I'm gonna be going through them uh, more or less in order. If you are listening to this and you wanna ask a question, now's the time to do it. Uh, we have about uh, 25 minutes here with Eric. And so Eric, the first question here, um, it's not related to the, to the topic at hand, but you're here, D- Director of Research, will ask you this question. From uh, Research Enjoyer, who's a very active uh, uh, member of the of the uh, server, so really good to see you as always, Research Enjoyer. The question is, how do closed sources factor into Bellingcat's digital
1: investigations? Hmm? We used to not use any, like we used to do, like a hard firewall, of no open, no closed sources at all, ever, ever, ever. And but we, that's melted down. That you know, it's like the wall in, um, in Game of Thrones. It's like it's melted over time. Not quite as dramatically in Game of Thrones when they knocked it all down, but. It's little it kind of melted over time. Um, so we do occasionally do some closed source um, closed sources in our materials, but it um, is we, we, de- we definitely try to avoid it. So like whenever we have a material uh, a publication that is a closed source, so this is things like you know an anonymous source or like a, a document that we can't publish and share, like that sort of thing. Um, we try to be as transparent as we possibly can and like caveat it with like, just so you know, this is what we do. This is why you can trust us. But we do as much open source verification as we can. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I was working on the, um, the Discord leak story, um, one of the, I did a whole bunch of research that was all open source and I got screenshots and verified and all that stuff. But a part of it was an interview with a, one of the members of the Discord group that Jack Desher was leaking from. Which is of course a close It's closed source. It's because I talked to him and he didn't want me to publish a video of the of the of the um, of the of the interview. So it was, you know, a closed source my like a forty five minute interview I did with him. And so we caveat it just like this is an interview, basically you no, know, we verified as much as we could through open sources, but we try to, you know, kind of silo it away and like note it, note it as much as we can. So we don't take sources that are, we don't take stories that are entirely built on closed sources, like we, we need to have a digital open source angle, like kind of as the primary got like focus to it, but sometimes around the edges, there might be some closed source stuff. So we've kind of relaxed our stance about that, kind of our editor our editors have, and we try to keep them, you know, if a closed source is kind of a complement to the story or kind of adjacent to the story. Um, we'll have it, but we try to, again, we try to verify everything we can through open sources and also kind of make sure that we're very, very transparent about what is open source, what is replicable, and what is closed source, and what is um, not replicable for, for the reader, but with as many caveats as we can of, like, how we, you know, verified it with open source elements.
0: Great. Thanks for that, Eric. Uh, we have a question here from Vandermarish, who uh, has also been around in the server for a while. Hi, Vandermarish. Good to see you. And um, this question is about how open source may have changed over the past year. The question from Vandermarish is: Did the invasion of Ukraine change anything about the importance of uh, sockment and the ways it's being conducted? What are the key areas of development here? I think I'm I'm really bad with all the ints. I think sockment is like social social, like social media, media stuff. Media, I guess. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. I, I don't. I, I hate. I hate the ends. Anything that's all caps with ints and int, I, I. My brain turns off when I see it. Um. I, yeah, I, think I don't think social, it really
0: open open source uh,
1: social media stuff. Yeah. There you go. There you go. I don't think it really changed anything. It, it just kind of brought it to the fourfold. Like I mean, like you know, there's a lot of new data sources out there. Obviously, right? Because Ukraine war is like by density the most densely covered like by open source war ever. I mean, I think I think the Syrian civil war still has more materials, but like obviously the, the density of the Ukraine war is higher. And there's been a lot of like leaks and hacks and things like that and new open source investigations that come from the warp. I don't think it's really changed anything. I think it's just uh it's just put brought things into focus and just kind of accelerated a lot of a lot of things. So like you get a lot of new initiatives who who do stuff, a lot of people who are getting into this who who weren't into it before, who were learning about OSINT, because they and it's also in a lot of legacy media have been focusing on it, like New York Times and Washington Post and so on. There have been a lot of open source investigations that have been really centered in kind of legacy media. So I don't think that the actual like I don't think like the fundamental parts of OCenter o- are any different. But I think that the coverage of it and the activity of it and the involvement in it has been heavily, heavily um, kind of accelerated.
0: Great. Thanks for that. Um, we have a question from Avox here. Hi, Avox. Thank you for coming to the talk and for asking your question here. And Avox's question is this Avox says, I would love to hear Eric talk about teaching the knowledge management portion of open source research. In other words, uh, about how you would approach the structure of saving your open source work as you're conducting an investigation.
1: Yeah, so I, I always say, yeah, so I, we talk about this and sometimes in workshops, and it's, um, we do, well, we do pretty often, but sometimes we don't directly talk about it, but we talk about it on the edges a lot. But it, it's everyone is a little bit different. Everyone prefers different stuff. So some people like to have something like... Um, like hunchly right so this is just inside the tool of hunchly where it automatically logs every single thing you ever do so it's all saved away some people like to just like save tons of screenshots as they go through i'm kind of a screenshot guy i just go and take big sc- like i have Snagit, which is a t- like a screenshot tool and i'll just go and i'll screenshot everything as i go through as everything that's interesting and i'll go back and revisit later because everything is time stamped and sequential so i like the- i like that too some people like to keep um either google sheets or google docs to keep everything straight i always say it's kind of like um like I studied Russian literature in grad school, and everyone it, like the, the the cliche is you're either a Tolstoy person or a Dostoevsky person. So so Tolstoy was like very structured and organized and cohesive, and Dostoevsky was a big jumbled schizophrenic mess, right? So you know I guess the Excel the Google Sheets version is kind of the Tolstoy. It's very structured and organized. You can keep stuff and you can date stuff and keep it categorized and like this is my link and this is my archive and you can automatically archive as you go through and all that stuff, right? And then the Dostoevsky is just like Google Docs, where you use something like 53 page, just like big jumble of screenshots and copy text and all that stuff. So it's really just whatever you want, like whatever you like, whatever kind of you, whatever you work with. Um, I, I do a little bit of both depending on the investigation. But I think the most important thing is you do one of these things or the other, right? You either keep lots and lots of screenshots, you keep in a big Google Doc, or you are very structured in organizing and archiving stuff as you go, like on a, on a spreadsheet. I'm not gonna tell you what to do because everyone's like a little bit different in how their brains work and what's easiest for them, uh, but just do whatever, whatever you do prefer.
0: Thanks, Eric. Um, we've got another one here from, oh, this is actually from Sarah, who's one of our Discord moderators. You met her on Monday. Uh, Eric, Sarah is asking, have you uh-huh. ever had a course I think you mentioned this, but it's it's a really good question. I'll 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 bring it up again. Have you ever had a course be significantly impacted by an external factor? Like for example, Twitter cutting its API and then had to scramble to find more content for a course? It seems like there's a ton to go over and you'll be okay, but it must be awful to have to to have a course nuked by something like uh, you know, Elon Musk deciding he's got a brilliant idea oh, yeah. and then it kills something.
1: I remember one time I was doing um we, i was doing an in-person course once and I that's in new york or dc i can't remember which and we have like a half day if you i don't know if you remember this but we used to have a half day set aside just for facebook graph search like just to work with facebook graph search and that's it um and i think like two like that morning facebook graph search was nuked and killed were you were you there for that john carlo No, no, but I
0: remember that. I remember the day that I started seeing people on Twitter going, "Hey, is is graph search not working for anybody else?" I wasn't doing a training, but I I remember watching it die live and and sweating as I was watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I was I was at. I'm pretty sure I was actually doing an in person training when that happened, and um, it was coming. And I I don't remember what we did. I think we just figured we just like substituted in like some big giant case study to work with instead but yeah that like the entire half day we had um was nuked because the graph search was killed and that was like our scheduled day to do the graph search day so yeah I don't i sorry Sarah I don't remember what we did because this was like 2018 2017 2018 which is like five years ago right um but I think I guess substituted in some uh, I guess substituted something in and I um uh, like some big case study that we like I keep because we always keep stuff in our back pocket to have so like if you know if something doesn't work or something, you know, if someone doesn't care about this and doesn't really vibe, whatever, we have some stuff um uh, saved in our back pocket like big case studies and exercises and things we can do instead. So we just substitute something substitute something in for it instead. Yeah.
0: Yeah, what's what does... a very boring answer, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, very practical one. Uh yeah, I mean what does tend to happen in trainings, um, you know, as if we're doing a training we'll review the slides before you know, to make sure all the tools are working. But every once in a while, something slips slips through or a website is down. It's so it works and it should work normally. But at the moment that you're doing it, the thing just doesn't want to work. That happens Mm -hmm. quite often. And then you just kind of have to pivot and go, okay, we'll come back to this. And like after, after lunch, let me just, you know, move on and then I'll, check during lunch and then I'll come back and I'll show you. So I end up doing that often. Uh, Just sort of taking a few steps back later on in the day and saying, okay, that thing I was trying to show you, it's working now.
1: So this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. We Um, also have screenshots. I always have screenshots saved away for everything too. Like whenever we have an exercise, like I always like my first instinct is always do a live demo of whatever tool or site we're showing off. But if we don't have that, then I have, um, yeah, I have screenshots like saved away, like in the slides, that you can review that are kind of backups.
0: We have a question from Timothy, who uh, is one of the, I don't know, the OGs from the server. We've been around for a long time. Hi, Timothy. Thank you for being here and for asking your question. The question is, um, what do you think are some, or the question is, really, what do you think is the most underdeveloped, in quotation marks, area of open source research or corner of open source research?
1: Mm. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I think a lot of it's regional focused, right? Because like, there's like an ungodly amount of information, um, on like, you know, Russia, Ukraine, right? Because it's just like, it's like such a hyper-focused area, right? But yeah, obviously like, you know, so, like Jake said, China, right? But China is like also like very closed off in a sense too. Like it's, it's hard, the barrier of entry for China is very, very high because like, you know, like WeChat, you can't, you can't get on to stuff without a Chinese phone number, right? a lot of services but i think like india for example right there's an ungodly amount of stuff that could be done like with india because it is you know very very connected there's a lot of stuff happening you know there's you know, over a billion people right there's a whole lot going on but there's on a, there is oscent work on india but honestly not as much as it probably deserves um at least kind of in the western press so i think that there are i think that india is a big one of like um i'm kind of surprised there isn't more kind of mainstream coverage of things um brazil too i think um because there's the I, I see them as similar, and there's a lot going on. I mean, they had their own January 6th, right? Basically, um, it was kind of kind of fomented through, like you know, a lot of Telegram and things like that. Um, so I think that I think it's a more of a. Re- I don't know about topics like topics in the like you know like map- mapping and satellites and flight tracking. I don't, but I mean like regional focus. I think that like India in the end particular is what I point to, and that it's like seems like there's a big untapped um, well of kind of open source work to do there.
0: Thanks, Eric. Uh, I was just reading Subtle Knife's question here. Um, Subtle Knife is also one of our uh, moderators. You also met her the other day. Hi, Subtle Knife. Mm-hmm. Thanks, here for your question. Uh, and this has to do, Eric, with that. I, I think that section of what you were talking about, how you'll get a group of people in an open workshop, and then um, you'll be speaking to a certain percentage of them because not everyone's going to know what indexing on Google means, for example. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Subtle's question is: Have you thought about doing something like a intake assessment? to sort participants mm-hmm. into more homogenous groups? Or do you find that it adds value actually to have diverse groups of people with diverse levels of, of skill sets <laughs> and knowledge?
1: Yeah, we used to do something kind of like this. I used to kind of um, try to have people grouping like this is the intermediate group and this is the beginner group. But I learned that people are really, really, really bad at self-assessment um and that people a lot of people who are absolutely beginners kind of overestimate their own skills because maybe like in their like maybe like they're being sent to this training for their job and like they're the they're the tech person in their job like at their law firm or whatever but they are like an absolute newbie compared to everyone else in the same sense someone who maybe does like cybersecurity, maybe is a new hire to like a cybersecurity firm and they feel like they're out of their depth and not not very smart but they're heads and shoulders above, you know, the smartest person at a law firm, right, when it comes to the this, this skill set that we're teaching. So I we we have tried things like that before, but I learned very quickly that people are really bad at self-assessment. So maybe like a test or something would be good if I developed that in the future. But before, when I have asked people to like self kind of categorize themselves in the group or list their skill levels, people are really bad at self-assessment. So. Um, that's why I just build the course around kind of these tiered systems instead. Um, maybe I, maybe that's something I should change next year. Um, especially like maybe a test or something we can, we can give out.
0: Uh, thanks. We have a question here from, oh my gosh, I forgot. I didn't get your name. I'm sorry. I think it was Avaricia, if I'm not mistaking. I think that's how you say your name. Hi Avaritia, I know you've been around for a while. I think this was you who asked this question and they asked two questions. I'm going to ask one first. Then I'll cycle through the other questions and I'll come back to this one, i if we have time. But the question here is, have you ever worried about, um, have you ever worried that exposing some of the techniques um, that you may be writing about in an article might impact ongoing investigations? For example, there was a dashcam site that went down when the war <laughs> started because everyone was using it for geolocations.
1: Yeah, I think about this sometimes and it's- this is just kind of a natural casualty of, of doing this work, is that when you reveal stuff, it, it goes down or it's changed. That's why you just try to get as much as you can out of it before you make it public. But it, it goes both ways, right? So, I mean, going back to the Pentagon leak story, this is kind of a, the ultimate example of this, is that I, I, was, I, I was live tweeting my research process, like, I'm looking for this, and I found this, and I found this, and I found this. And as I would post stuff, like, I would post, like, oh, I found the leak on this Discord server. The Discord server would, go, would like, delete everything within 15 minutes, Right. But on the other hand, people would also reach out to me and would come out in the replies and the people would come out kind of separately saying, oh, I was part of this. I saved it. And they would post it, right? And there'd be more leads and more ideas. So often when you kind of reveal sources slash um, techniques, um, they go down or they get flooded or whatever, which is kind of an inevitable thing of what happens. That's just part of doing OSINT right you just try to do it you try to mitigate the best you can when you can um of archiving stuff and saving it so you know the stuff the important stuff is saved away um because if you don't then you're you know it's the same as like a legacy media who doesn't reveal their techniques it's not open source at that point it's just it just happens sometimes you just can't change it but there are sometimes some good things that come out of it right so people come out of the woodwork who are part of a site or community who will then post and share information um that's important too. So it's not always entirely negative. Um, Sometimes it it can have some positive effects, but it's just, I think it's just part, it's just, you know, part of doing business in this kind of line of work sometimes if you want to be transparent, then you gotta, um, you gotta reveal stuff that sometimes goes down.
0: Thanks for that. Uh, we've got one here from uh, Kaleo. I'm going to try to kind of reward it live. So um, I'm sorry if it doesn't make sense. It's not that Kaleo's question didn't make sense. It's that my interpretation of it doesn't make sense. But Kaleo's asking about, I think, uh, skills that may be difficult to translate from like field work, f- like physical, I'm on the ground, to, to a classroom. So the question is, how would you teach something that usually can only be done live? Like, for example, Uh, identifying and monitoring ongoing terror attacks or protests or, you know, industrial disasters that are happening live. Um, uh, uh, Kaleo says, I have the experience and the working concepts for teaching this kind of thing, uh, but I usually like to implement exercises in my teachings, which I find hard to do in seminars for this kind of topic. So, again, I think the question is, how do you teach uh, about things that you would think that you'd have to be there for in order
1: to monitor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah this is going to happen a lot and sometimes especially when we do in-person workshops we all we try to like we leave blank spaces sometimes like at least we i haven't done an in person like one of these in-person workshops in a while but i'd always leave like a space like okay this is like something is happening right now today we're going to be like doing this right well like i'll leave a space of like like that morning I will check into the news and see what's going on or check the trending topics and like, okay, we'll structure this exercise to look into topic X, which is happening right now in place Y, right? So sometimes I just I just leave some breathing room within the curriculum for this, like for a breaking event because there's always something happening somewhere, even if it's minor. Um, even if something is like, there was a concert last night at this place. Can you find photos and videos from people who were there? Like it could be something as, it doesn't have to be like a bomb with blood and all that stuff, right? It could be something kind of more um, benign. Or more, um, you, know, you know, pacifist. Uh, but also, I, you know, you can, re- you can recreate processes too, or you can set up hypotheticals. Like, okay, you know, let's say that you're going through and you kind of do a case study on how you, how you did this at some point. Like, this is how I, you know, how we published a story that did verification of research into, you know, disaster Y or conflict X. Well, you could also set it like, okay, imagine something is happening. what are the keywords you would use? What is the process you would do, and you know kind of what is your general process and that you would approach this with so the, the the two things i've I've done in the past are either finding a um, a current event that's happening right then and I find like the morning of the training or I kind of just figure out some kind of hypothetical of you know like let's say that there is a bomb that goes off in a, you know a metro station in d c or in New York um and, and place Y. You know, what is your process? Like have like a hypothetical, like what would your process X, Y, Z B? What would you do first? What would you do second? Like would, what size would you use? What keywords would you use? You know, kind of how would you structure your search? So those are the those are the two things that I've done um, for this.
0: The next question here is from Mutiny. And Mutiny is asking about Uh, picking a topic, I think, for for doing research on. So, uh, by the way, this is probably the last question that we'll get a chance to ask Eric since we're basically at time. Um, Mutiny's question is, Tristan mentioned last week, our friend Tristan, of course, from Bellingcat, Tristan mentioned last week that if you're just now today getting on the train to follow the Ukraine war, then you're probably too late, Um, or words to that effect says mutiny here so the question is how do you know where the next potential hot spot is going to be how would you have known to follow ukraine back in in 2014. so i guess more broadly how do you know what kind of topic to focus on
1: i think it's kind of reverse kind of the wrong way of approaching it because a lot of times the people who are the worst at investigating the war in ukraine are the people who are kind of parachuting in who have no regional or knowledge at all right who are just trying to like just like, oh, this is the thing happening, so I'm going to do research on it. Even though I know absolutely, I don't know Russia, I don't know Ukraine, I don't know anything about Russia, I don't know anything about Ukraine, but I'm the one who's going to do research. Are you really helping with that? It's kind of the question. So I don't think the question is like how you seek out the next thing to research or the next hotspot in the world. Like, I'm going to research Taiwan, even though I don't know, you know, Mandarin, and I don't know anything about Taiwan, and I don't know anything about China. That's not really the thing you should be thinking about. It's rather like how do you develop your own research interests and in things that you're interested in? And it may have something interesting that comes out, like maybe there's a conflict in that area, or maybe there's something that's happening or noteworthy, but I don't think that you should be seek you shouldn't be like ambulance chasing, <laughs> another way of saying it. Like I don't think you should like ambulance chasing an OSENT is a good way of making like really bad investigations and having un, uninformed investigations. Um rather you should kind of think about what are the OSENT angles for something that you do know about or you are actually genuinely interested in and that you have, you know, interest in. Um Rather than, like I said, like ambulance chasing the next crisis or the next war and then trying to, like, be on it. That's maybe my pet peeve, just saying, because, I, I, you know, I, I studied Russian and I've been doing this forever, and I've seen a lot of really, really bad OSINT work around the war, war in Ukraine back, going back to 2014. So maybe it's just a pet peeve I have. Um, but that's kind of, um, kind of my feeling. Because I never tried to research Syria. I don't know Arabic. I don't know anything about Syria. So I never, I never even really tried to research things in Syria, even though I'm pretty good at the OSINT thing. Because um, I just don't feel like I'm really qualified to do it. Um, I'll leave it to people who are. So,
0: yeah. Eric, uh, thank you so much for coming. Eric Toler is the Director of Training and Research at Bellingcat. Thanks again for your time.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward/bellingcat The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.